And now, coming to you live from the Gresham Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strahan and Garrett K. Wolf on the very long absent Coot Street Podcast. Well, and it's been a long summer, and you've been you've been away from the Coot Street Motel 6 for, what, a month or something? I was, yeah, I was out of the country for two weeks. Out of, yeah, that- just over two weeks. Uh, in sunny San Francisco and uh, warm and humid uh, Chicago. Well, people were always surprised when Chicago was warm and humid, but it is August, and I, I keep I keep reminding people of this in temperate climates. People, who, you live in a hot climate, I think. The most dangerous weather events in Chicago are heat. They are not blizzards. They're not tornadoes. They're not floods. They're heat. But anyway, most of the people I think at, yeah. at the World Science Fiction Convention, ChiCon Eight, I think, I um, yep, it seemed to have a good time. It was in. The same Hyatt Regency Hotel that Chaikon 7 had been in, which was the same one that Chaikon 6 had been in. So it's one of the few cases where veteran Worldcon goers can actually recognize the same hotel uh, that they were in before. Not too much different than, uh, than what it looked like 20 years ago. Well, I mean, uh, how long ago? Chaikon 7 wasn't that long ago, was it? It was like 10 years ago. Um, yeah. Um, maybe 11 years ago. I'm not sure. Um, yeah yeah but i mean look, look this convention i mean it was for the first convention i've attended in the covid era it was very much a a normal kind of convention it was like there was about four thousand people there i think if i understand correctly um p- panels were run i mean people were masking from, for the most part um but that seemed to be the only real difference the dealer's room looked fit and healthy you know it seemed to be like a good a good time for all well, that's what I meant about it being an old, uh, a return to an old-fashioned convention. I enjoyed Discon last December in D.C., but it was December. That doesn't feel like a, a Worldcon no matter where you are. Um, yeah. And I think there was also a sense among a lot of the people I talked to that, uh, you're right, where it felt almost like a post-COVID one, although there were a number of COVID cases reported, as, as you mentioned. Yeah, I think it was about 60, of, wasn't there? Something like 60 out of, out of 4,000 people. Uh, and I, yeah. I, I think the con did a responsible job of reporting on that, of, of, of trying to keep track of reported cases. Uh, as several people noted, the con can have a masking policy, but you can't insist that the entire north side of Chicago have a masking policy, or for that matter, That's true. the hotel does. That said, I mean, a lot of dining was done out of doors, and things yeah. happened, and it all seemed to be good. I mean, uh, the Hugos were very well attended uh, and were presented as per normal on the Sunday evening of the event, and our congratulations to every single person who was nominated and to all of those who were lucky enough to take home a new rocket. And the the, the ceremonies that I saw, and I admit I did not see the opening and closing ceremonies, I'm a great admirer of, of, of Charlie, Jane, and Annalise's banter and their capabilities and their and their po- podcast, which deservedly won, of course. Um, mm-hmm. But I just never get to opening and closing ceremonies of these things. It has nothing to do with whether the quality. My point is that of the of the public parts of the conference, I saw everything mm-hmm. seemed to be very professional, very well organized, um, and running more or less smoothly. Uh, and I think uh, that's if true. There were, if there, if there were uh, nightmarish scenarios that uh, that bub- bubble up afterwards. I, they just escaped my attention. I don't know. Did you get a sense that it was really um, that the focus of the convention was more or less traditional than it had been in recent years? By which I mean, there was, for example, a, a whole 
uh, string of panels about 1946, which is a very retro kind of focus uh, for, for well, this. Well, and then okay. Well, let's start with me, as always, allowing that I don't go to programming. Oh, yeah. And as someone who doesn't go to programming, I then don't pay much attention to it. So I paid attention to the programming items that I was on. Mm -hmm. And then I was going around seeing people and meeting people and keeping busy like that. But my sense was that it was a pretty normal Worldcon program when I glanced through it. I, I think that's what I'm getting at. It, it seemed, um, it, it, it didn't seem overbalanced one way or the other. I mean, the, the, I suppose the biggest drama going into the convention was the question of whether Ogenichoe, uh Donald Ekpeki was going to be able to get his visa. And he yes. did, and we met him, and he was on the podcast that we believe we recorded there. Um, and, uh, and, and there was a lot of interesting discussion about uh, African science fiction, about new voices in science fiction, about genre bending. This is genre, Mixing genres has been a kind of radical new topic at Worldcons for the last 40 years. So people ought to stop thinking of it as a radical new topic. It is kind of boring now. It, it, it's, it's not news to anybody anymore. Um, I mean, I you suppose... Know, and in fact, what's interesting is there hasn't been as big a swing back in many ways as I would have expected to people kind of going, well, could we now see some science fiction written with, with, with the, the rules, the, the net back up? You know, we'd, I'd like to see some core science fiction for a change. Well, that raises a question which I was thinking about Actually, I was thinking about that simply uh, as, a, as, a, as a reaction to reading something you did, uh, the MIT anthology called, Life, uh, called Tomorrow's Parties, Life in, in the Anthropocene, which yep. is, apart, apart from what your collection of stories looks like, the whole MIT series has become kind of a default uh, example of hard science fiction. And I was thinking about that. Well, there is hard science fiction out there. There's no doubt there is stuff that is technically uh, obsessed. Most of the stories that you put in, in, in this collection are not that, but they have enough hard science in them to warrant that discussion. Let me, let me give you a... a well, I, I, guess, I guess my argument was that the term hard science fiction, I think, is probably obsolete. Oh, obsolete, obsolete, or well, just changed. Um, uh, I think I, I think it's too much of a blunt instrument to describe contemporary science fiction, and by that I don't mean that it's uh, the, the original term, which I think actually started out as hardcore science fiction, was fairly clearly back in the fifties supposed to distinguish Hal Clement and and Arthur Clarke and Asimov. Um, from people like Sturgeon and Bradbury and uh, people who were writing yeah. sociology, what, what Asimov himself called social science fiction. And the model, I don't have any proof of this, but I was told this by somebody once, the model was hard versus soft sciences. Hard yeah. science fiction is about physics and astronomy and chemistry. Yeah. Soft science fiction is about psychology and sociology and anthropology and that sort of thing. Um, that worked as long as there were people working in one extreme or the other, and they're still there. But the field is no longer divided in that spectrum. I mean, once you had people like Le Guin or our current, my current favorite example, Kim Stanley Robinson, you can't really say that they're not literary, and you can't really say that they're not hard SF when they need to be. That is true. I mean, I think um, 
the last few Stan Robinson books, and particularly maybe Aurora, most obviously, was mm. hard science fiction. Absolutely. Though that hardness, I mean, and I've argued a few times that actually what what made hard SF stand out from core SF or whatever else you want to call it is a coldness of tone, a remoteness of tone. Um, and that, you know, that when I think about things like, say, um, Benford's Galactic Center series, that mm-hmm. those sort of things to me have, a, or say Greg Bear's Eon, those have a, the chilliness of tone a little bit to them. Uh, whereas Stan's books are very warm and very immediate. Um, most of the things that I would consider to be rules up, uh, like net up science fiction, uh, is is different from that that old style. You know, I mean, I wonder up, though. I mean, like, yeah, net up science fiction isn't necessarily chilliness of tone. I mean, one of the things that I would argue is that uh, the the writers you, you mentioned, for example, Benford, who is a writer, yeah. if anybody currently operating is thought of as a hard science fiction writer. And yet one of his great influences is Faulkner. One of the things he can do very well is write this yep. long periodic prose. Uh, and there's some absolutely beautiful passages in his Galactic Center novels or, or his other novels. He, he spends a lot of time developing this character, Nigel Walmsley. In other words, a lot of what he's doing in that series is mainstream literary stuff within mm-hmm. this framework of an indifferent universe. And maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe the difference is philosophical rather than stylistic. Maybe the idea is simply that the universe doesn't care about. Well, I mean, all going to die. it's also. I mean, it certainly feels that some of the people who were major proponents of hard SF in the last twenty years are either paying attention to writing other things, or they've just slightly fallen from the forefront of the discussion of things. I mean, we haven't, for example, talked much about Stephen Baxter in a while, <laughs> though he's still you know, writing and putting out new novels, and they're getting attention. Um, I'm sure, um, Adrian Tchaikovsky would be in that space as well. Mm -hmm. Um, some of Paul McCauley's work. Uh, I actually was wondering how you felt about, what's the name of the book? Um, The Mountain in the Sea uh, by Ray Naylor. I mean, is that hard SF? I think that's classic hard SF in the sense that, uh, the, the phrase I use there is speculative fiction because I, uh, I was arguing, and this will appear in my review whenever it appears. We call it speculative fiction, but there's a novel in which a lot of speculation is going on. The characters are speculating about things. The novelist is speculating about things. He's doing all the things that hard science fiction does, but he's doing it in the context of characters who are fleshed out in novelistic ways. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're not simply uh, voices. They're not simply viewpoints, which... Uh, and, and frequently in, in, the, in the classic hard science fiction, Arthur Clarke is the best example of this. Arthur Clarke, as far as I can tell, was a decent, humane person, but he could not create a character to save his life. All yeah. of his characters were, were, were specific voices. Um, and yet the sense of wonder was still there. I think with Naylor, you get a sense of wonder. It's about alien communication, the novel, basically. Yeah. Uh, but the aliens, in this case, are octopuses. And yeah. It was one of those things where I haven't had this feeling a long time, partly because I don't keep up with science as well as I used to, where I could not draw the line between what was his speculative science and what was the real science he was presenting to us because his research yeah, yeah. seemed seamless. Yeah. And so it was thought-provoking in the sense of the best science fiction, but it was humanistic in the sense of what we used to think of as not hard science fiction or not core science fiction. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, I... I, I, I... I, I don't, it'll be interesting to see how this um, 
plays out over the next five or 10 years in science fiction. I mean, one of the other things I was talking about and was talking about uh, at um, Chicago, at Chicon, mm. was, you know, this idea that the field has become ever more diverse and has, has more, you know, has scope to become even more diverse. Mm. Um, but there's that question of like, how is this changing the core, the center, the heart of science fiction? Uh, because I think it is, but I don't think we've yet seen fully how. Well, I think one of the things is, uh, is, is we're looking at that core. We're looking at the hard science fiction part of it from new angles. In other words, it's uh, well, t two, two writers that I find fascinating um, in, in, in this regard, both of whom are, uh, are in your uh, Life in the Anthropocene anthology. One is Tade Thompson, whose mm -hmm. trilogy of novels uh, it's set in Nigeria. It gets all the attention for being an African-based series, but it's also got an extremely sophisticated notion of alien communication, of uh, mm -hmm. spores that somehow can be it can infect you through, through your skin if you're not wearing some kind of um, antifungal thing. In other words, he's worked out the hard science fiction aspect of that, and in each novel of the Rosewater trilogy, he expands that in another way. In other words. If you look at that trilogy as a hard science fiction trilogy, each volume expands the scope of the previous volume. That's a classic hard yeah. science fiction strategy. But he's doing this in the context of a group of characters that we would never have seen in hard science fiction 20 years yeah. Other example is Greg Egan, who when I was looking through, you know, again, your anthology, I was thinking, okay, this is going to be real hard science fiction. It really wasn't. It was really kind of a satirical, uh, very cleverly done, very powerfully done uh, attack on climate deniers um, and it used pseudoscience in a very kind of creative way but it wasn't the hard physics alternate math kind of cosmos that we've seen in earlier Greg Egan fictions. Well I think one of the big things that's changed in Greg's fiction is that as time has gone on his short fiction has become softer and his long fiction has become more abstract and harder. So when you go and you read the, you know, the more recent novels, uh, they're not very accessible in some ways, but all of the short fiction is. I think this that's is much true. more typical of that. Except I, I would argue that the short fiction has always been that way because one of his early famous stories was Reasons to be Cheerful, I think. Yeah. Uh, which is just kind of a classic, uh, you know, uh, humanistic uh, uh, approach to things. Uh, mm. So I, I guess my point is that some of the writers that we thought of uh, that somehow got pigeonholed as hard science fiction writers, um, some of them were never really that. Greg Bear was never really that. He was a literary writer who learned science. Mm. Um, but they've, they've all kind of moved in this direction where uh, it's not enough to write uh, the cold equations. It's not enough to say that the universe is, is cold and chilly and hates us. Uh, You've got to you've got to say that in the context of some believable uh, characters, and I think yes. I, I, I think that's what the response over the past decades to hard science fiction has often been. That it's easy to make fun of if you don't have any yes. flesh and blood characters doing these things. I think that's true. I think that's true. I think we have, we have to allow well, we'll tell you know, the, the the listenership that our uncanny professionalism has come out. Because we are actually podcasting through a live kitten distraction. Uh, yes, and if we had an audio thing, this this kitten, by the way, uh, 
at any moment, the podcast may disrupt it because she's thinking about diving onto the keyboard that I'm sitting in front of at this moment, which is her. Uh, 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 oh, there she goes. She's thinking at all. She's not. <laughs> One of the things, if you're thinking about getting a kitten, think about the fact that a laptop keyboard is warm and soft. It's a wonderful place to lie down. <laughs> yes. But for people who would miss this information, yes, uh, Dale and I have a new kitten, which we've had for about a month now, and it's interesting. But mm. to get back to hard SF. Um, Right, get back to hard. Uh, hey, look, kitten, cats, and hard SF—they go together. Um, th there's more than one cat in hard SF, as I recall. There are whole anthologies of cats, isn't there? Wasn't one of the Marty Greenberg anthologies called "Cat Fantastic" or something? I think he, he did multiple volumes of Cat Fantastic. Probably multiple. Yeah, 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 exactly. Just as Gardner does, and Jack Dan did multiple, a couple, two volumes of Magic Cats, and you know, right. And you know, if you go down your your science fiction side of things, you'd get something like the Haviland Tough stories that George R. R. Martin wrote, or the the Chinora books that um, C.J. Cherry wrote. And I'm Camel pretty sure there's some Andre Norton ones as well. Cordwainer Smith, yeah, Cat's Eye, Cat's Paw. Um, well, that's uh, this is a separate topic altogether. Are there more cat stories than there are dog stories in science fiction? Yes, yes, overwhelmingly, I think. Uh, and I, I'm pretty sure that Jack and Gardner did like dog tales, but I they don't think it did anywhere near. Probably didn't do nearly as well. I suppose maybe the classic, one of the classic science fiction dog stories remains Clifford Simak's Desertion. I, I guess, I mean, um, but I think that, I mean, J Jack and Gardner could have done three or four volumes of Magic Cat, whereas, I mean, there's a handful of dog stories. Um, but not as many as they're used to. As you but think. if you anyway. okay, if you if you eliminate fantasy and horror, let's because uh, cats have. Oh, oh no 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 no! Come on, are we still recording? Yes, we're still recording, Gary. Okay, good. Uh, she, uh, this is Jonesy on the keyboard, which any science <laughs> movie fan will recognize the name. But at any rate, um. My argument would be that uh, it's easy to find cat stories because cat stories exist in science fiction, in fantasy, in horror, it's, it's mm -hmm. all across the map. And dog stories tend historically, apart from the science fiction and fantasy genres, tend historically to be either survivalist tales or terribly sentimental stories about yes. Lassie. Yeah. Uh, so there's well, something more like stories new... all about cats. Well, it's like the new Stephen King book. It's a dog, a dog, dog tale. Okay, I did not know that. Uh, which it, I, which you've I read, know. by the way. You read this on your way uh, back. It's to... the first Stephen King book I've finished reading in years. And, you know, it's like, it's fine. Well, if you're talking about Stephen King, to me, that means it's readable and you'll finish it. Oh, it was readable and I finished it. I mean, I read it on a plane. I read it on two planes. Well, I mean, yeah. Uh, uh, I have not read it. I've not read a Stephen King story. Well, actually, that's not quite true. I started, I started one of his novels called The Cell, and could not get very far into it at all because mm. it was frankly a bad novel. But well, this, go ahead. I don't. I almost don't want to synopsize this one because I kind of feel like it ruins it too readily. It's it's a contemporary set, 
uh, novel featuring a young 17-year-old boy who, uh, who tries to help a neighbor and ends up looking after the neighbor's dog, and the boy and the neighbor's dog go to a fantasy land. Okay, that sounds a little bit like The Talisman, but with the dog. It, it's a little bit like The Talisman without Peter Straub editing it. Um, uh-huh. it's, oh. it's like it's fine, but it's very much um, how to describe it. It's kind of like Old Yeller meets The Wizard of Oz. Okay, I could kind of see that, and I could kind of see the appeal of that sort of thing as well. Mm-hmm. But, oh, look, I've, been, I've been taken. I mean, I'm always taken when books are you know, very widely and positively reviewed elsewhere. And then I read it, I'm kind of going like, yeah, you know, like, it's okay. And this is one is of those. It, it, it's got great reviews. If you love Stephen King, you'll probably love it. 500 but pages, feel, 800 Yeah, but pages. 550. I mean, and, and again, it tells you, I mean, I read more than half of it on the way between, from Chicago to San Francisco, and then the rest of it between San, uh, Singapore and Perth. Okay, but you can't tell you can't tell me that you were trapped on the plane with a book. I know you have a Kindle. I know you have other books. You oh no, 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 not at all. I was choosing to. It was like the right kind of thing for that spot. I had the Kindle my with point, point hundreds is, of books Stephen, on it, and I had mm-hmm. Stephen King as a writer with enough narrative drive, uh, whatever else is strong or weak about his fiction, enough narrative drive that you will plow through five hundred and fifty pages, even though I'm guessing two hundred and fifty pages in. You were figuring out this is going to be okay, it's going to be fine, but you still oh, yeah. finished. And, and also that all-pervasive feeling that this 560-page book would have made a very good 300-page book. Which is true of a lot of his, or or in some cases even a novella. Um, mm-hmm. I'm trying but, you to know, remember. I mean, look, it, it's not, to, me, to me, it's not classic King. I don't think it's going to show up on awards or anything, but it'll sell a bazillion copies and people will enjoy it, and they're going to make a movie out of it. Yeah, I'm trying to remember the. the I've, I've more than once I finished a Stephen King novel, uh, and at the end I was thinking, eh. But then I was thinking, I finished it, and most writers, if there's a 550 page novel that isn't really impressing me, I'm not going to go through with it. It has to yeah. do with the skill of the narrative. Uh, I mentioned, for example, the, the last time this happened, and we did talk about it on an earlier podcast, was um, uh, Kate. Hartrell's The Embroidered Book, which I didn't think I was mm-hmm. going to finish. It's 500 pages. It's a very, very well-told story, and it did not mm-hmm. disappoint me. But um, there's something just about the ability to write narrative, and it's not writing a page-turner. It's not It's not the James Patterson technique yep. of write short paragraphs and short sentences and short chapters, and each each chapter has to end on a, uh, on a hook. It has to mm-hmm. do with understanding the shape of the story and understanding what the reader is looking for next. And I think King is, is, has always been brilliant at doing that. Otherwise he would not have gotten me to finish. Oh, what was that long novel about an alien spaceship in somebody's backyard that turned the Tommy knockers, the Tommy knockers. There is no way to defend that as a good novel. And I kind of just fell through it. And at the end, I thought halfway through, I thought this is not going to be a very good novel. At the end, I thought this wasn't a very good novel. But I finished it, and I felt like I'd accomplished something. I know people who love it. I'm sorry. Every time, every time you hear it's that, the attack noise, of the Joneses. It means there's a there's, there's a kitten attacking this this kitten. The more and the more I take her away from the keyboard, the more she realizes that's what she really wants in life. Yes, yes. Everything that is for, forbidden 
is is the most attractive. Well, it, it's interesting also uh, when we start talking about uh, science fiction and King that I think his some of his weakest stories are the ones where he tries to use science fictional ideas. Yeah. And the Tommyknockers was an alien invasion story in a sense. Um, so uh, uh, there may there may be something in there about how the strongest kind of structure for a horror story is almost the opposite of the strongest kind of structure for a science fiction story. I think maybe so. Maybe so. I mean, my argument um, would be this: horror, yep. horror essentially, uh, when it's very effective, is about something being discovered, being suppressed again, or being escaped. Um, I, I recently reread Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness, which atmospherically is brilliant, although practically nothing happens in it at all. Yeah. Um, and, and you think of, um, you know, the classic horror stories like Dracula is really about foiling Dracula. It's, it's, it's about preventing uh, the, the takeover of the world. Science fiction, in other words, horror tends historically to be about the denial of change until yeah. you get to, and science fiction is of course about promoting change is about you, you want a different world, yeah. uh, the different world in science, the dif different world that science fiction offers you is the Grunsback continuum. It's maybe a kind of technological utopia. That's the classic twenties and thirties thing. The future that horror offers you is a world of zombies and plagues and monsters. Yes. I think that's probably true. Um, not that I read much horror, so I'm not much of a, a student of it, so I can't really say a whole lot, you know. In fact, this has been a year of not a lot of reading, I must admit, and I really mm. need to, like, fix that. I, you know, have you been reading anything of interest or, or uh, that's, that's been good lately? Um, not in the last few weeks. The Ray Nalen novel you mentioned, I thought that was very good. I think that was as provocative a hard science fiction novel as I've probably read this year. Um, yeah. There are things that I'm reading that I've been reading partly because, uh, well, we might as well acknowledge a good friend of ours died uh, a couple yes, of weeks ago. Yes, dear friend. Uh, and so I've been reading things that are comfort food. And one of them is K.J. Parker's Pulling the Wings Off Angels, which ought not to be comfort food because it's violent and cynical and uh, has nothing but <laughs> despicable characters in it. But yep. he treats them so delightfully that I just kind of feel I'm, I'm glad to be back with these venal, horrible people because they're so genuine. Well, I mean, certainly what I found, well, I think sometimes uh, Parker gets the, the balance just exactly right. And sometimes it wobbles a bit. I think pulling the wings off angels is uh, one where he gets it just right. Uh, I think it's funny. I think it's dark. I think it's whatever else. Um, I mean, I'm biased, of course, as well, having acquired the story and edited the story. But I think one of the things he does, and he's not the first one to do this, but he does it extremely well. And we know from having chatted with him on this podcast that he's picked up some tonalities from writers like P.G. Woodhouse. And so the voice is, uh, is, is very precise. But it's also a very contemporary voice describing a very kind of medieval renaissance, classically fantasy world. It's a sort yeah. of thing. You don't expect, and it's not new. It's it's. it's um, I mean, I remember one of the things that first impressed me about Zelazny's Amber stories was that he was writing high fantasy as a hard boiled, uh, with hard boiled heroes. The language yeah. very contemporary. The characters are very contemporary, and I, I see a lot of that sort of thing going on. And 
for it to work well, you have to have absolute control of tone. And at his best, Parker has that control of tone. Yes. No, I think he has it, has it really, I mean, the, the, he has a strong enough story to balance against the tone that he's bringing to it. You know, I think it works really, it's very clever and, and, and very entertaining. Um, and is amongst my favorite of his novellas in the last five or 10 years, which he's been putting out reliably every, you know, sort of three or four or five of them a year. Although he seems to be a turning entirely toward novellas these days. I mean, um, when was the last novel we saw from him? Well, you got to remember that he's still writing as, as Tom Holt. Well, that's but, I mean, yeah, no, I mean, there's a trilogy of novels just when he just finished up earlier this year. Um, and you might say, which one or whom? And I'm going to get the titles. That's why we're just going to hear me clicking around because I know the, the series, but where are you? Yeah, come here. It was, where are we? He had, oh no, where's the series gone? Over the wild side. Yeah, it's a thing called The Siege. There were 16 ways to defend a walled city. Oh, right. Exactly. How to rule an empire and get away with it. And then a practical guide to conquering the world. Right. And practical guide came out th this year. Um, and at the same time, there was a new Tom Holt novel not terribly long ago. But yes, there's a lot of novellas as well. Um, he's publishing them with Tor and with um, uh, with with Subterranean, and there've been some really, really, really good good stories. Let me uh, another writer that I've become fascinated by because I'm reading another Tor.com novella and uh, putting I guess another plug. Not that Tor.com needs another plug with all the uh, Hugo nominations and Nebula nominations they get, but Looking at those novellas is a good sense of knowing which direction different writers are going in. The other yeah. novella I read is Nevo's Into the River in, in, Into the Riverlands. Yeah, uh, which is the third, third and final of that series. Singing Hill series. They're all separate. I mean, they're all independent. The first one, I think, uh, was The Empress of Salt and Fortune. Uh, and then yeah. Tiger Comes Down the Mountain. But uh, what becomes apparent reading that after reading um, uh, The Siren Queen and... Uh, the Chosen and the Beautiful, is that she's fascinated with different kinds of storytelling. All mm -hmm. of her stories are, and, and this one in particular, is essentially a pilgrimage. It's a kind of uh, Canterbury Tales thing, a, a disparate group of characters all walking through a kind of wilderness and toward the river, riverlands, and they tell stories along the way, and they encounter stories along the way. Uh, and it's as though she's looking at traditional uh, Chinese and Vietnamese modes of storytelling, incorporating them into a story that like, like a few other writers, like Zen Cho has done this, combining uh, classic wuxia fiction with classic historical fiction, with comedy, with low comedy, uh, with storytelling. But uh, I, I think that's one of the great themes of contemporary fantasy writers is simply finding out what fantasy can and can't do. Yeah. Um, and, and looking at story as a subject for stories. One of the best examples being Alex Harrow's 10,000 Doors of January. Yeah. So, so, so that fascinates me because it's finally fantasy, which is about something other than uh, Tolkien jigsaw puzzles. 
We had a, con a, 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 a very interesting conversation one night during ShyCon with uh, John Kessel and James Patrick Kelly. We were mm. fortunate enough to go for dinner. And at one point, they were talking about the difference between science fiction and fantasy. I think it was John who, who, who put it forward, though you can correct me if I'm wrong, that the difference between science fiction and fantasy is that fantasy believes the universe is interested in what we think and do. Science fiction doesn't. That's an interesting distinction. And I think in terms of classical science fiction and classical fantasy, he may be right. Yeah. Um, I, th I think the difference is, another way of putting that might be something that Clute said, and he was not at Worldcon, but I've talked to him about this more than once, that fantasy believes the world is storyable, that the world yields to story, that the world in fact is a compilation of stories. Yeah. And science fiction believes, no, it's not. It doesn't care what the stories are. It's just there. It doesn't have a story. It doesn't have a meaning. It doesn't have uh, anything other than the raw data. And that may be the kind of thing that, that Kessel had in mind with, with saying that science fiction is simply about an unyielding universe, which I, I, I agree with. I think that science fiction is, is much maligned, as deservedly maligned as the cold equations might be, the title is a pretty good metaphor for the way science fiction works. Yeah, I think it is too. Um, not that I've read it for a long time. I mean, it's one of those things that sort of circle, circles around in the background quite a lot. I, I reread it not long ago because we were talking about Jim Kelly and his Think Like a Dinosaur is one of many direct responses to, uh, to the, the um, cold equations, the Tom Godwin story. There, but, but, but the point is that the stories that respond to it, this is an interesting thing also about a, a field like ours. Uh, Think Like a Dinosaur is kind of a classic these days, but it's not nearly as widely read as The Cold Equations itself. And not long after The Cold Equations came out, piece of, I guess, science fiction trivia, because I've not checked this in the index, Murray Leinster wrote a, novel, a, a short story called The Ethical Equations. Mm -hmm. It's in Planet Stories or Thrilling Wonder Stories or someplace maybe a year or two afterwards. And it was clearly meant as a rebuttal. Nobody reads the, that Murray Leinster story anymore. Um, I'm pretty sure it was Murray Leinster. But at any rate... Well, I mean, but they certainly read an awful lot of um, rebuttals and whatever yeah. of the cold equations. I mean, it's, I don't know particularly why, because in some ways it's not that great a story. But... It's not a good story. It's, it, it, it's the most contrived story in the world. But the point that story was trying to make is a valid point about science fiction which is the universe will not yield to your wishes, no matter how tragic they may be. It's, it's horribly contrived. I mean, it's, yes. it's incompetent engineering. Every, all the criticisms of, 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 of the story, world of that story are, are valid. But the point that actually Campbell wanted to make more than Godwin was yeah. that the universe doesn't care about you uh, is still an important point. What year did the cold equations come out? Do you remember? I'm going to say 56, maybe. Did you say 56? I think. I thought it was 56. Uh, I've got a reason for asking that. Guess when the Ethical Equations by Murray Leinster came out? Came out before that? 45. Really? Interesting. Now I wonder if the Tom Godwin story was responding to the Murray Leinster story, which, I, as I recall, had something to do with luck, quantifiable luck or something. Yeah. I don't know. I genuinely don't know. But I mean, um, I mean the, 
yeah, I mean, the cold equations came out 54, so nine years after it. Right. Interesting. And, of, well, not of course, but both in Astounding, both edited by Campbell, both no doubt provoked by him to greater and lesser degrees. But 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 Leinster probably had more leeway dealing with Campbell than than a, a young and not terribly mm. well-known writer like Godwin did. I mean, the story of Campbell forcing Godwin to rewrite the story until it ended the way it did is a fairly well-known story. I mean, Godwin yeah, yeah, yeah. had... He thought of three or four different ways of rescuing the young stowaway. And Campbell said, no, the point of this story is that the universe doesn't care about you. Uh, which is kind of odd because later we get into Dianetics and Scientology and this sort of thing. But nevertheless, um, the hard science fiction attitude he was trying to... Yeah. Campbell was using that story as an instrument to explore this attitude, which I think is a valid description of the hard science fiction attitude. Uh, yeah. And I, th I think uh, I, I think the the dichotomy that followed afterwards was unfair to writers like Sturgeon, who could write hard science fiction when he wanted to. Bradbury probably couldn't. He probably just didn't know enough and didn't care enough about science. But but yeah, that that kind of mitosis that happened in the fifties, uh, to get back to a point we were making at the beginning of the podcast, just doesn't yeah. hold up anymore. You can't just say yeah. I'm a hard science fiction writer, so I don't need to do characters and don't need to write a decent style, and you can't really say, I'm a sensitive stylist with good characters, so I don't need to do my homework. I've certainly encountered both attitudes at different times, and what I've found is that you can't, well, I don't think you can write a convincing science fiction story or speculative fiction story without a pay, paying attention to both to some degree. You know, the number of times I've seen short stories fall apart because the author hasn't paid basic attention to world building, yeah. uh, you know, it, it, it is a real thing. And you might say, well, you're not interested in world building, but you've still got to sort of make practical allowance for how long things take to happen and, you know, whatever else. So, yeah. Well, one of the points I was making I was, at, at that dinner, and I think I was missing part of the conversation because it was a lot of rest but I was talking to, to John Kessel about a novel that he and I had both read, Emily St. John Mandel's The Sea of Tranquility. Mm. which is her first sort of semi-science fiction novel since Station Eleven. And part of it takes place in 1912 in British Columbia. And it's brilliantly, cleverly researched. She figured out how this uh, disgraced young heir of, 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 of a British fortune gets exiled to Canada, how he makes his way across Canada. In other words, she's done all the research she needs to find out what life was like in England and Canada and British Columbia uh, specifically in 1912, then part of it is in the near future, which is all right because you don't really need to do too much manipulation. You make some, at, at this point, any writer can just yeah. make some offhand reference to the Florida archipelago <clears throat> and they think they've taken care of global warming. But then she moves into the 23rd century and there's a moon colony uh, and you realize that the moon colony is simply metaphorical for this novel. She has yeah. not talked out any details at all. I know Kessel was sensitive about this because he spent a lot of time working out his moon colony uh, details in The Moon and the Other, uh, just like um, well, our friend, um, oh, I'm, I'm blanking now on the, on the moon trilogy, Ian McDonald's. Ian McDonald's Luna Books. Uh, Luna Books. And uh, we, we talked to both uh, McDonald and Kessel about that. Those are good novels with solid characters in them and some uh, melodramatic elements, 
but they both spent a lot of time figuring out how their moon colonies would work. And the moon colonies are very different. That's one yes. of the fascinations of science fiction is that you can have a credible moon colony that looks like Kessel's. You can have one that looks like Arthur Clarke's The Fall of Moon Dust back in the 50s. You can have one that looks like Ian McDonald's. But Mandel hadn't bothered to work out any of those details. The moon colony was just there as a signal of the future. And yeah. that's kind of when, what's kind of what I mean about not doing homework. If you're going to do that much homework for the historical section of your novel, don't you owe it to your reader to do an equal amount of homework for the speculative section of your novel? I would have thought so, but it's just not the um, the focus of a lot of stuff. I mean, there are things which are science fictional ideas, science fictional concepts, you know, a moon colony being one of them, where they're so mainstreamed now that it feels like they don't require any explanation. And it's one of the for things, maybe the mainstream... I, yeah, I, I, wanted, I wanted to devote a whole podcast to this one because... I've, I've been fascinated by this. I, I, I've used the term evaporating for, but science fiction ideas escaping into the mainstream. And we talked before about how time travel, which didn't really start with science fiction, but science fiction claimed it for a long time. I mean, some, time travel is Peggy Sue got married. It's Emma Straub's novel about her father. It's uh, Audrey Niffendegger's The Time Traveler's Wife. In other words, time travel is just a literary device now. <clears throat> I think... Moon colonies are kind of an easy shorthand for something in the future. But the latest thing I've seen to just escape science fiction like a bat out of hell is the multiverse. The multiverse yeah. is one kind, one's kind of an arcane idea, you know. Those of us who had read Hugh Everett's Mindy World's interpretation of quantum mechanics back in the 50s, and it was clever, and everybody from Heinlein to, to, to Terry Pratchett and, and, and Stephen Baxter made use of it. Now it's a get-out-of-jail-free card for Marvel movies. Mm -hmm. Well, in fact, and, they, they are the, the pathway to spreading the concept of the multiverse, are they not? You know, the biggest, most high-profile media series in the planet right now, and its mm -hmm. core lies, you know, uh, Hugh, Hugh Everett's The Multiverse. Right, or, or at least some allusion to Hugh Everett's Multiverse. Mm, yeah. Uh, but I... I mean, the, the N.K. Jemisin's most recent novel, The World We Make, uh, invokes a multiverse, which wasn't there in the first novel, I don't recall. Um, there's uh, very good Cadwell Turnbull's uh, No Gods, No Monsters. Looks like it's going to be a werewolf novel, but by the end, he's Hugh, Ever Hugh, Hugh Everett actually shows up as a character in it. Yeah. Um, so, in other words, I'm thinking the multiverse is now something that no longer science fiction can no longer claim as its own. It's just a well, narrative. I mean, what actually can science fiction claim as it's solely its own anymore? Because after all, the rocket ship, the ray gun, the robot, um, genetic engineering, um, all these things are heavily mainstreamed. You know, uh, and I mean, they started mainstreaming um, uh, DNA and, and genetic manipulation back with uh, Jurassic Park and other films, you know. So these ideas have been explained and laid out. It's just that the, the general listener, reader, viewer just doesn't particularly want to read 400 pages of it. No, I, I, but my point, and this, this goes back to the relationship between hard and non-hard science fiction, hard science fiction and the other. Jurassic Park, at the moment you've resurrected the dinosaur using DNA from a, a mosquito or whatever, it turns into science fiction. It becomes a science fiction story. The the 
ideas behind it uh, are, are purely science fictional ideas. What I'm talking about is something like, let's say, The Time Traveler's Wife, which yep. isn't science fiction at all. It simply involves no. time travel, which it's barred from science fiction because it's kind of a neat way to tell the story of a marriage, you know, moving back and forth in time. In other words, it's, it's using a science fictional device to use something that would have been a point of view device in an earlier generation. Yeah. It's um, true. I think that's very I, true. I think the same thing may be happening with the, the multiverse. I, the, the, uh, the most interesting multiverse movie out there this year is, is, is everything all, what's the title of it? Everything, everything all everywhere, together. all at once. Yes. Um, which actually Michelle knows Yosef. it's, it, it, it's, it's a beautifully complex film. It's logically worked out. It doesn't pretend to be science fiction. It just pretends there's a universe, a multiverse here. And it uses it in very clever narrative ways. Um, as I say, when you get to Dr. Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, the title pretty much tells you everything you need to know. It's a multiverse of madness. It doesn't have to make any sense. True. Very, very, very true. Um, it occurs to me, since we didn't before, I will uh, add you know, a link, because I don't think we're going to go through everybody, uh, mm. add uh, a link to the Hugo Award winners for 2022. Yes. And I noticed that earlier today the Ignite Awards were presented as were the British Fantasy Awards. British Fantasy Awards. I just was reading so those earlier. congratulations to all of the people who, who received those awards, and I will make sure that you get that, um, we'll get that information out with the podcast. And as long as we're at that, I mean, you mentioned the Ignite Awards, the British Fantasy Awards, the British Science Fiction Awards, which were announced earlier this year or something else. A complaint which we may have made on this podcast, and if we have, I'm now going to renege on it is that there are too many awards in the field. I don't think there are too many awards in the field. Um, you don't? No. Not for the people who get Why them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, they're just enough when you get them. They're, 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 when you have one, they're just enough. I mean, uh, they're, they're, well, the thing is, there are a lot of awards. Some of them have very special uh, definitions. For example, there are the Sidewise Awards that are only for alternate history. Um, mm -hmm. But by and large, the field is so diverse these days that recognizing one single award, I was thinking about this during the Hugo ceremonies, the Hugo nominees really were kind of all over the map. But one Hugo to represent all the different things that science fiction and fantasy has been doing for a year uh, seems kind of ridiculous. You're dealing with different kinds of readerships. You're dealing with different kinds yeah. of publications. You're dealing with different approaches. Um, yeah. and, 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 and therefore... Uh, something that doesn't get a Hugo Award may still be the best example of what it was, of what it was trying to do, uh, of, of, of all the novels that year, or novellas or short stories or whatever. So yeah. I'm, I'm thinking now that, um, yeah, we have a lot of awards. They're all different awards, and I, I'd rather have 20 or 30 different awards like we have. Yeah. And to do, for example, what I, I understand the romance writers of America do, which you have 40, 50 categories of, of, of various things that, um, that try to cover everything in one award ceremony. So in other words, I'd rather have multiple different kinds of awards than 40 or 50 categories for Hugo Awards. Could you sure. imagine Hugo Award for science fiction, for best hard science fiction, for best soft science fiction, for best semi-hard science fiction, for best space opera, I, you I can don't have think a space opera. Semi -hard, 
Uh, yeah, sure, I, I can kind of imagine that. It, it doesn't sound great. But, I mean, we no. should also acknowledge that we are begin, going to soon begin the process, Gary, uh, of putting together the set of awards that we work on together, the Locus yes. Awards, because it's like it's mid-September, and it won't be that long before we have to start putting together year-in-review pieces. And there's been some great great books out. I mean, I'm going to be curious to see whether we remember them at, by, the, by year's end. I mean, books like uh, When Women Were Dragons by Kelly Barnhill from earlier in the year, or John Darnell's uh, Devil House, or you know, Lavi Tidhar's um, Neom, which I think you would be you'd be reading now. I've which... already reviewed it. I the, the review's not out yet, I guess. That's but, right. But, that's right. But Neom, okay, and, and that's another good example. I mean, the, the, that's that's a writer we don't need to spend time about it again. But Lavi Tidhar is a novel who's is, is a writer who's very interested in sort of honoring and recognizing the history of science fiction in his own novels. And at the same yes. time, doing new things and revising and revisiting some of these ideas. So, so yeah, there's yeah. a lot of good writing going on out there. And uh, having one or two different awards doesn't seem to address everything. Plus the fact that all the every single award out there is problematical in some way or another. It's compromisable so? in some way or another. How so? As you've said before, it's, 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 a pop, it's, it's, it's your, your favorite pie at the fair contest. Uh, it's your uh, your buddies get together and vote you an award contest. It's a small group of a small coterie of elitist people decide you're getting this award. Every single award can be objected to in some way, and that's probably a good thing. Probably, probably. I mean, I like them. I, I like I, I like awards. I enjoy awards. I think they're fun. I think, unfortunately, they get taken too seriously. Well, they get taken seriously in some ways, but you know, uh, by and large, I've heard this said many times that uh, by publishers and publicists that the Hugo Awards can make a difference in book sales. Um, historically, uh, going way back, a Hugo yeah. Award for a hardbound novel would really juice up the sales for the paperback, which traditionally would come out a year later. So you'd have, mm -hmm. for example. Um, you know, a, a paperback of a novel coming out in August or September of a book that had just won the Hugo Award. Uh, that kind of world doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. So I don't think that any awards necessarily are going to change the career of a writer. Um, yeah. well, not, but not they, might the field, save, they might save a writer from obscurity. Possibly so. I mean, the problem with the, well, the, the question with, the, with um, obscurity is it's a factor of time. And you just don't know what time is going to do. You know, there's you know probably nobody who is safe from obscurity eventually. Well, by, by safe from obscurity, I mean uh, somebody who's a fairly new writer who might sink into oblivion by the time of their second novel or, or, or something. An award will keep attention on those writers for a while. Sure. Uh, for a while. You're right. Time, time is the time worst. Time takes us all. Yeah. I mean, I was in a bookstore yesterday with a mutual friend of ours, James Bradley, mm -hmm. who's visiting Perth this weekend. And I was almost surprised to find two, two, two Robert Heinlein novels on the shelf in, uh, in a mainstream indie bookstore, mm. you know, in their science fiction section. But, you know, it's like, oh, so, you know, you don't disappear entirely. No, and, and, and sometimes the awards keep uh, 
keep awareness of the author, even though the author may not have, mm. uh, have survived at all. I mean, one of the things that I've, I've when I when I went through looking at science fiction novels in the 50s and 60s and 70s for the Library of America, the Library of America people are not unaware of marketing. They're concerned which of these novels are still being read at all, which of these novels sure. are likely saleable. And there are some novels which I thought were brilliant uh, in their own way. George Alec Effinger's When Gravity Fails, for example. Um, they've just disappeared. They're, they're, nobody's buying them. They're out of print. Um, there are a lot of things. So, so when we try to you know, bring somebody like, for example, Ari Lafferty back into print, that's a useful service because you're trying to bring the attention of a new audience to these people. And sometimes yeah. lists of awards do that. When Joe Walden went through her list of, you know, looking at all the Hugo nominees, when uh, Rich Horton is doing the same thing now, uh, I, th I think that's a good way of kind of rescuing some writers who probably were overlooked at the time. The Hugo nominations may not have meant anything at the time, but maybe they mean something now because these are stories that, you know, five or 10 or 20 or 30 years ago meant something. Well, certainly I think the Hugo win will keep your book around longer and being talked about. Yeah. A major award win. Um, I, I think once you move from the Hugos and Nebulas, that becomes less less true. But I yeah, think I the, don't the know. Hugo... Uh, well, World yeah. Fantasy Awards are the only other one that I would think might make a difference, and I've never heard anybody argue that a World Fantasy Award necessarily improves sales of a book. I could be completely yeah. wrong about that. I don't know. Anyway, we're going to be doing some more podcasting. We were away for far longer than we thought we would be. Mm -hmm. We were gone for like, been bit off the air for like six weeks, which almost feels like we have to give up our, our Christmas break just to make up for it. Um, you're going to go to the New Orleans World Fantasy Convention in late October, early November. Early November. Maybe we'll catch Maybe we'll catch some uh, podcasts there. We're talk we've been talking to some some people about recording episodes in the coming couple of weeks. So hopefully, we're going to be able to maintain a much more reliable schedule for a while. Well, the summer was, uh, as, as you may know or may not, I was off on a cruise in Alaska for two weeks of that. We had Worldcon, which we might have been able to record podcasts at, but but we didn't. Um, so yeah, consider that our summer break and now the fall season is upon us and we'll be, we'll promise to do better. We, we will do much better. We have, we have to stop and talk to our friend about, about our, our, our friend, Peter Straub, which we will do, uh, in a, in a separate episode. We're also going to talk about, talk to some of the people that we met at world at Worldcon, who, uh, we didn't talk to there, but we'll get a chance to do at home. Uh, and we will hopefully find a way to entertain you through the coming weeks and months. And especially when we start looking at recommended reading lists for next year. So until then, this has been, I guess, for the first time in many weeks, the Coot Street Podcast. It has indeed. <laughs>